The time is now. Volume 5, episode 95. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. How is it the middle of April 2021 already? I don't understand it. I feel like I just wished you all a happy holiday and then a happy new year and here we are starting the second quarter of this year already. It's hard to believe. We have had a lot going on in the past three to four weeks when it comes to government agencies and employment law. So I wanted to update you on that quickly. And I also wanted to bring in a very special guest to give you a firsthand account of what one of those agencies is doing. Oh, and did I mention that COVID-19 and vaccinations continues to be a dominant theme here? So government agencies, what's been going on? First, let's start, as we tend to do quite frequently, with the EEOC. Earlier this year, in 2021, several business groups submitted written correspondence to the EEOC imploring the agency to issue additional guidance on vaccines. You will remember, because you listened to every one of my episodes on this podcast, that back on December 16th of 2020, the EEOC issued really its first substantive COVID-19 guidance specifically on the issue of mandatory vaccine policies. An open question, particularly with the change in Washington administration, was the extent to which employers can appropriately create incentive programs those who are not necessarily going to mandate vaccines, but want to incentivize employees to become vaccinated. What are the rules surrounding that? What can employers do? What can't they do? In a letter just last week, Thursday, April 15th, responding to those groups, the EEOC's acting legal counsel just informed everyone that the commission is in the process of further updating its COVID-19 guidance to specifically address that very issue of incentive programs for COVID-19 vaccines. Although the acting legal counsel of the commission stopped short of giving an ETA on when exactly that additional guidance will be issued. My guess is we will hear something before Memorial Day, but stay tuned for further information on that. Second federal agency, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, in what can best be described, I think, as an unequivocal statement of pro-employee initiative, the NLRB's acting general counsel, Peter Orr, has just announced that the NLRB will begin to demonstrate, quote, vigorous, end quote, enforcement of two of the NLRB's traditional doctrines, the Mutual Aid or Protection Doctrine and uh, the uh, Concerted 
protected activity doctrine. I always like to describe the back and forth of federal agency initiatives and priorities as TNFP. TNFP, what, what does that stand for, you ask? The need for pencils. As in, draft your employee handbooks and your employee manuals in pen or in typed prose at your own peril because things change constantly with the do's and the don'ts, the pro-employer or the pro-employee bent, depending on the shifting political winds in Washington, D.C. You will remember, also from this podcast, that the Obama administration board was fairly aggressive in educating employees about their rights to engage in protected concerted activities, whether that was through social media or otherwise. And the Obama administration board made its own concerted effort to make clear that the rules under the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, applied to non-unionized companies and facilities too. In other words, these rules were not just for those companies that had a unionized workforce. Well, not soon after all of the ink dried on those rewritten and more generalized policies that people started to have their companies write in the Obama administration or during the Obama administration years, in come the Trump administration officials and its Republican-led NLRB, which shifted almost on a dime to narrow and more significantly restrict the NLRB's interpretation of its doctrines, its precedent, and in turn broaden the rights of employees, again, in both unionized and non-unionized facilities. I hope you didn't blink because in this latest NLRB memo that was just issued, we learn right from page one that the NLRB intends to be more aggressive. And it's worth noting two of the words used in the opening pages of this memo from the NLRB. The word vigorously and the word robustly. As in, the NLRB cannot get its point across any clearer, any stronger, that it is going to be taking almost a 180 degree turn and becoming much more focused on broad interpretations and pro-employee interpretations. So in this memo, again, we learn that the board intends to vigorously protect what it deems to be employees' fundamental rights and to more robustly enforce the NLRA's provisions. And again, I take no position at the moment uh, as to whether this is a good thing, a bad thing, uh, consistent with the language of the act or inconsistent. I'm just telling you that as we have seen with each new political administration in Washington, we are going back to a very aggressive and a very pro-employee National Labor Relations Board. And your organization would be wise to go back and look again at its policies, at its handbooks and uh, manuals, and figure out whether the social media policies or any of the other workplace conduct policies that might have been revised over the Trump administration years need to be looked at and revised again. Where will we likely see immediate action from the NLRB? Well, this memo called out two issues specifically and two cases specifically. 
First, on the issue of collective discussion about wages, even including discretionary customer tips, as well as conversations between and among coworkers that did not necessarily on its face suggest any particular impact on those employees' terms and conditions of work. But this NLRB is going to more vigorously and more robustly find that certain activity is inherently concerted, and therefore it is inherently protected under the NLRA. There will be more of an attempt with this Republican-led NLRB to more broadly interpret the term protected concerted activity and all that comes from it. There will be also significant impacts, the board's memo has advised us, on employees engaging in political and social justice advocacy, particularly when there is a link to, uh, between that advocacy and, on the other hand, employees' interests as employees. So we can expect that the NLRB will not shy away from the realities of 2021 and likely years, uh, years beyond 2021, the realities of employees engaging in greater numbers in political and social justice advocacy. What impact does that have on this notion that employees have a right to engage in certain kinds of concerted protected activity? So keep your eyes and ears open. We will be hearing more and reading more from the NLRB, and we will certainly be right here to advise you and analyze those new developments. Third, the Department of Labor, the United States Department of Labor. As you've heard right here, the Department of Labor is proposing to roll back two Trump administration regulations dealing with independent contractor and joint employment issues. We expect the Department of Labor to continue to be aggressive when it comes to enforcement and when it comes to policy initiatives and regulation. So, again, without beating a dead horse, continue to stay here as we will continue to bring you the very latest in developments from the Department of Labor and really from all of these federal agencies who are becoming quite active. Finally, there is OSHA. So much is percolating there at OSHA that I thought it would be nice to have somebody come on the podcast today and help explain it all. What is OSHA? Is OSHA going to be more aggressive toward employers in the face of return to work and workplace safety and whistleblowing issues that have come up in the past year in the context of COVID-19? Is OSHA going to announce a COVID-19 specific standard? Well, I am very honored to have now my uh, colleague again here at Cozen, Jim Sullivan, join us on the podcast. Jim uh, has been a labor law for decades. He joined us at Cozen O'Connor a few years ago before suddenly leaving us in May of 2017 when President Trump appointed Jim to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Jim was later appointed by President Trump uh, to be the commission's chairman, and he was confirmed by the U.S. Senate for that appointment in July of 2019. Having just left the review commission, he has now returned to become a colleague of ours in the Labor and Employment Department, and we are honored to have Jim Sullivan provide an insider's view on some of these OSHA-related questions. 
Jim, it's uh, great to have you back at Cozen. Uh, good to see you. Thank you. It's great to be back, Mike. So tell us a little bit about your path uh, to OSHA, uh, how you got there, and how you found the experience while you were there in Washington. Well, uh, for most of my career, I was a traditional labor and employment lawyer, but I also maintained an occupational safety and health practice and was active in the OSHA bar uh, at the ABA level and ended up becoming co-chair of the ABA section on occupational safety and health law. And uh, after the president was elected, I threw in my name to be a commissioner on the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, which everybody thinks is part of OSHA, and it is not. Um, unlike the NLRB, it's completely independent of OSHA. OSHA is part of the Department of Labor. The Review Commission is not. It's quasi-judicial agency that uh, handles the trials between employers that are cited by the Department of Labor through OSHA for violations, then those administrative law judges' decisions are appealable to three commissioners. Many times there's not a full quorum of three, unfortunately, but two makes a quorum. They can uh, decide cases, and then those are appealed to uh, the United States Court of Appeals, mm -hmm. typically to the D.C. Circuit, uh, many times to the Fifth Circuit, Eleventh Circuit where it's located. How'd you find the experience? Did you uh, like being in government? I liked being in this uh, quasi-judicial position, academic point of view. You really mm -hmm. had a lot of time, kind of like uh, if you were going to go teach law school somewhere, you're spending a lot of time reading the prior cases. Uh, you have a bunch of talented attorneys helping you write the opinions. Um, we had some oral arguments that were high-profile cases, one involving workplace violence and the murder of an employee by uh, a client. <clears throat> so uh, it was kind of kind of different and fun to be uh, a neutral and not an advocate. That makes sense. And, and what's interesting, when it comes to federal agencies, most companies out there, I think, are far more familiar with the EEOC, the Department of Labor, maybe even the NLRB, but there's still a little bit of mystery when it comes to OSHA and its processes and certainly the Review Commission. If you could walk us through what the primary function of OSHA as an agency is and who determines what the agency's priorities are going to be? Sure. So the, the, the statute was passed 50 years ago, uh, 1971, and it was created as part of the Department of Labor. The Secretary of Labor is in charge of all the priorities for that agency. And they adopted initially lots of national industry standards, but then they only had a two-year period where they could unilaterally adopt those without notice and comment rulemaking. And then they started adopting all these other standards that most employers would be familiar with, like the noise standard, uh, the dust standard, um, fall protection, those types of things. <clears throat> and they have standards for construction industry, for general industry. They have some standards for maritime. But the bottom line is, is that <clears throat> OSHA was there to enforce workplace safety and health. They found that it was a need. Uh, historically, however, uh, the proposed penalties are um, relatively low. So the citation is important for employers because it impacts your workers' comp insurance, your general liability insurance. In some states, a violation is negligence per se, 
if there's some kind of third party suing you outside the workers' compensation bar. So it has a lot of impact and it's done a lot of great things for workplace safety and health. It's a fantastic statute. Um, the review commission was there because they didn't want to have the same party deciding the cases that was also the prosecutor, which is a real problem, I think, with the NLRB. So um, even though they're politically appointed members, they're still all part of the same agency. So the independence of the review commission really helps with the ability to um, make a ruling, I believe, that is based on the facts and doesn't have any kind of internal political uh, pressure on it. But over the years, <clears throat> OSHA has not gone uh, as highly noticed because there's only been historically enough inspectors to inspect maybe 10% of all the workplaces in the United States. And of course, there are 21 states and that have their own state OSHA, Michigan being one of them, California um, <clears throat> is Virginia. And those states have the obligation to at least have as strong or stronger regulations and standards than federal OSHA. And California has emerged, as you, most of your audience may know, as having more stringent standards than federal OSHA, which is why it's so interesting that the new head of OSHA is the former head of Cal OSHA, who is starting his job, I guess, as we speak. <clears throat> yeah, and, and so I want to. I'm going to ask you in a moment about uh, the citations generally that are that are being issued, and, and a couple of questions on that. But I'd want to stay with the process, and I guess help educate those out there who don't really have a great sense of OSHA and its process. How would an employer? How does an employer become involved in an OSHA matter? Is this a random reach out by the agency? Is it is it initiated by a complaint by a current or former employee? How does an employer first hear typically from OSHA? Most of the complaint, most of the inspections are generated by complaints received by the OSHA area office, but they do have a number of programmed inspections. Right now, we have a national emphasis program for COVID-19 and those inspections are happening as a result of looking at statistics involving employers. Employers have an obligation on the act to record occupational injuries and illnesses. These are logs and summaries that they have to keep under the law. They look at those. They also look at where instance in COVID-19, there's been a lot of uh, <clears throat> infections, which is famously in the meatpacking in other industries where people are working closely together. Those are, those are programmed inspections, not based on uh, a, a complaint, but most of the uh, time over the years, it's been somewhere where there's a, a, a complaint, or of course, there's rules that employers have to follow if someone is injured and hospitalized, they have to report that to OSHA. And of course, you have to report a fatality at your workplace to OSHA. So <clears throat> those are the types of inspections that take place. If in fact, there's an inspection and you're issued a citation, you have 15 working days within which to contest that citation. During that 15 working days, most employers take advantage of what's called an informal conference with the area office to see if there can be a settlement reached. Uh, sometimes you can get characterization changes, for instance, having a willful citation reduced to a serious or a serious citation reduced to an other than serious, which is important, especially, for example, if you're a federal contractor, uh, these citations have an impact on your ability to continue to bid for, for work in the federal government. So <clears throat> it has a far reaching impact more than just the proposed penalty 
The proposed penalties were raised over the past few years significantly, and now they're adjusted to inflation. So that's um, somewhat helpful in trying to, because there's always been some bad actors who recognize that uh, it's cheaper to pay the penalty than to comply with the law. And that's been a real problem. But OSHA has been addressing that with something called the Severe Violators Program. Uh, and back in the 80s and early 90s, they started a thing called egregious policy where they tried to build up the proposed penalties to over a million dollars by, by, by having a penalty per employee or per instance. Um, and that was effective. Um, the Slipper uh, Labor did a good job on that to try to get more enforcement because really there haven't been enough inspectors and the penalties are pretty low in terms of having this type of statute uh, enforced successfully. There's some bad actors out there. Yeah, no question. Not, not uh, many, but there's some. Yeah, and, and so what is the current makeup of, of OSHA and, and who's making determinations from, I guess, a 30,000 foot level? So uh, the... David Parker is the, the proposed assistant secretary of labor for OSHA. That's the person who runs, who will run the agency uh, under the leadership of secretary of labor, Marty Walsh. Um, <clears throat> and as I said, he comes from Cal OSHA, has a history with uh, the involvement of groups that are focusing on increasing enforcement, increasing uh, workplace safety and health organization called WorkSafe. So it'll be interesting to see. We didn't have a, during the entire Trump administration, we didn't have a political appointee. We, uh, <clears throat> Scott Mungo, who was the director of workplace safety at FedEx, was uh, nominated. He went through the hearing process and his nomination never came up to a vote and eventually he withdrew. So that's who's, uh, who's gonna be running OSHA is uh, folks from California. <laughs> for good or for bad. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about citations, and uh, I saw a statistic that said uh, over 40% of citations are now actually being contested by employers when traditionally there was a much lower percentage in terms of uh, contested citations. Why the change? Well, um, the, the number that I heard is that 44% of these what we'll call COVID-19 related citations are being contested. And there's a couple reasons in my view. First of all, when um, an employer is cited under COVID-19, uh, it's typically under three areas. There's a thing called the respiratory protection standard, which requires an employer to have a full-blown written respiratory protection program. And that means that <clears throat> your employees are wearing what we now call an, you know, what's called an N95 mask. It's not a, you know, a, a, not a respirator that's got forced air. It's just a mask, but it's fit tested. It can only supposed to be only be worn once. Um, you have to get in a medical evaluation by a healthcare professional about the fit. Most employees have to be clean shaven. There's a lot of restrictions. And most employers, some of the employers, for example, Mike, that are being cited, would never even think they needed one. Uh, these are warehouses and places like that. If you are working in a chemical facility that you know there's exposure to potentially hazardous chemicals, um, respirator program is more common. If you have a healthcare facility uh, where you know that your employees are gonna be exposed to infectious uh, substances in the air, you're used to having this, but now we're having people being cited, when I say people, employers being cited throughout the country and they had no idea 
one, that they had to have this written plan with medical evaluation, and two, that the fact that their employees may have one particular type of mask rather than another triggers these obligations. So <clears throat> that's one reason. The second reason is if you're an employer and attorney and they you get a call and it says, well, we've just been cited, and uh, you ask them about their uh, infection rate or the number of people testing positive, et cetera, and uh, the employer says to the attorney, well, do you think I should contest this? And the answer is yes, because the contest is a three-sentence letter that costs nothing. Yeah. Also, it leaves the, the, the area director's office, and the case is then docketed with another agency called the Review Commission. The entire file goes to the regional solicitor of labor's office. It's out of the hands of the area office that those are the inspectors, the compliance safety and health inspectors. And now it's with a new person, an attorney who may be inundated with these cases. And if you're talking about settlement now, I don't, I'll tell you in the 40 years I've done this, I've never gotten a worse settlement, Mike, from the regional solicitor than I was offered from the area director. Mm -hmm. So it just makes sense to do it that way. And you just say, look, okay, you think that I exposed my employees to COVID-19? Prove it, okay? Um, we haven't had that proven yet. There hasn't been a case that has gone to trial before the review commission on COVID-19. And some of these are being cited under what's called the general duty clause, which is a catch-all. Mm -hmm. They're not being cited under a particular standard. And uh, to make a case out on the general duty clause, if you're the solicitor of labor, is more difficult than you just saying that you violated, for example, the personal protection equipment standard or the respiratory protection plan standard. So <clears throat> there's good reasons why these are happening. And then we also don't know where uh, other potential liability arises, even though we have the workers' comp bar and employees generally can't sue their employers for these types of injuries. Is this going to go into that gross negligence standard if it's yeah. COVID-19? Is it going to go into something like... Uh, <clears throat> You know, every third party, a contractor's employees is at your site at um, at your warehouse and they get sick and die of COVID. And now you're sued and they're going to say, well, yeah, we're suing you because you agreed. You pled guilty to a violation of OSHA with regard to COVID-19. So there's too much at risk for an employer who can afford to uh, at least push it to the regional solicitor's office. That's why. I would be surprised if the contest rate wasn't above 50% in these cases. It's interesting because, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious that employers might not want to be the so-called guinea pig on that first COVID-19 trial uh, before uh, OSHA or the Review Commission. But it almost sounds as if you're saying OSHA isn't really that uh, energetic about taking that first case or trying that first case uh, related to COVID either. Well, I'm not saying that because it just takes time. <clears throat> I mean, remember, these are citations that have all been issued in the last year. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there will be cases tried before administrative law judges. But the trials, unfortunately, have been really slowed down by uh, the Zoom hearings. Uh, you know, some parties do not want to do Zoom discovery. So uh, there's a backlog right now. But before you know it, we're going to have an administrative law judge issue a decision on a COVID-19 related uh, citation, which probably will go up to the commission that I used to sit on. 
there'll certainly be a lot of attention uh, on that. So let's let's stay with COVID-19 for a moment. Obviously, it's a hot topic with OSHA, with other government agencies. There have been a lot of commentators, as I'm sure you know, who have questioned why we have not really heard from OSHA over the past year on a specific COVID-19 standard, right or wrong. Um, assuming you don't disagree with that observation, why hasn't OSHA come out yet with uh, an emergency temporary standard specific to COVID-19? Well, let's go back to the prior administration. Uh, I mean, the AFL-CIO actually filed a suit in federal court trying to force Secretary of Labor um, Scalia to issue a standard, and his determination was that a emergency standard was not required. Um, so as famously as you all know, at the end of January, President Biden uh, issued an executive order ordering OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard dealing with COVID-19 exposure by March 15th, and that never happened. And now you have commentators all over the place trying to explain what's actually going to happen, not going to happen, why it hasn't happened yet. And what your audience needs to focus on is two words, grave danger. <laughs> so when they passed the statute, they said, in very limited circumstances, you can bypass all the notice and comment rulemaking of the uh, you know, the Administrative Procedures Act, but it has to be if there's a grave danger that you have to act on immediately. Um, they've tried it eight times. Uh, most times they have been successfully challenged in federal court. The last time they tried it was 1983 when they were trying to get an emergency temporary standard for asbestos and, and OSHA failed in court to get that done. So my feeling is, is that some of the lifelong uh, employees within OSHA are saying, you know, wait a minute, are we going to, we know we're going to be challenged immediately in federal court by employer associations, whether it's United States Chamber or someone else, depending on what the standard says. <clears throat> a lot of people are saying now, well, we're not going to get the California emergency temporary standard, even though we have the California people taking control of federal OSHA because it's too controversial. And California is controversial because it is the most aggressive and the most burdensome for employers. They have actually an exclusion pay provision in their emergency temporary standard where you're required to pay those employees full pay and benefits if they are quarantined or excluded from work simply by potential exposure um, in the workplace. <clears throat> Uh, some commentators are hoping that the Virginia, which is now a permanent standard, which is uh, much less burdensome, will become emergency temporary standard. I still believe that if they do issue an emergency temporary standard, it's there only because of political pressure, and it will be intended to be the beginning of what's called a permanent standard. And emergency temporary standard can only last for six months. Now, they could extend it. It's never been done before to try to extend it. But... Rulemaking under OSHA takes a long time. Uh, it's it's <clears throat> not something that can happen overnight uh, because of the, the Administrative Procedures Act. There's a lot of comment. There's a lot of uh, testimony from experts. So is there sufficient political pressure to get this out before the next few weeks? Maybe. Uh, will the emergency temporary standard stick around as an emergency temporary standard, uh, I doubt it, not with the vaccination rates the way they are. I think that what they'll do is to say, well, this is emerging temporary standard, but we're really going to issue a permanent standard and we're starting the process and we're going to start notice and comment rulemaking. But in the meantime, 
you've got to comply with this standard. And what would it look like? I mean, I know we're speculating a bit, but what would an emergency temporary standard in the COVID-19 world even look like for motion? It's not different from what people are doing now. I mean, it would require masks, probably. It would require social distancing. It would require cleaning of surfaces. It would require having a written plan so an employer would have a written plan. I mean, there are employers. There was an employer cited in Massachusetts. Uh, I think it was a veterinary office or I forget, I think it was a veterinary office, Mike, where they said, you can't wear a mask, refuse the employees to wear a mask. You know, and they, they got cited under the general duty clause by Fed OSHA. So there are employers out that are just not doing anything uh, appropriate, I would guess, to try to protect employees, even with the vaccination coming up. But it would, it would be, what Virginia basically does is to have disinfecting services, uh, social distancing, reporting of people that are, um, <clears throat> testing positive. I don't know whether it'll be a testing requirement. I kind of doubt it, but maybe there will be a testing requirement. Certainly you'd have to pay for the testing if it goes on. And then there would have some kind of isolation procedure, quarantining those potentially impacted or exposed. But other than that, it, I don't think it would have, uh, but California has big, much big different things. They have things, that definition of an outbreak. And of course, all that exclusion pay uh, etc. But there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure, political pressure on OSHA now to do uh, a lot of things in COVID. We'll see what it does. But I think it's going to look more like a Virginia standard than a California standard. That's interesting. And, and if and when it does become uh, an actual standard that gets issued, this is no longer just sort of a best practices or recommended guideline. There'll be some teeth behind that. Oh yeah, you're you're going to be subject to cite, citations under the emergency temporary standard, which is a little bit more difficult to defend. Where now you're being cited under the general duty clause standard, or you're being cited under the personal protection equipment standard, or in some instances under the respiratory protection standard. And you know it's it's sometimes uh, easier. It's going to be difficult for employers to successfully defend against these, uh, but. Again, I'm not sure an emergency temporary standard will survive judicial challenge based on the history and the record of OSHA defending emergency temporary standards over the last 50 years in federal court. And just, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and just uh, lastly, going beyond COVID-19 for the moment, although, you know, who's talking about anything else other than COVID-19 these days still, um, what's your sense of what employers might uh, expect to see as OSHA priorities in the next couple of years beyond COVID? Well, the first thing you're going to see, and it's already happening, is there's going to be a lot more funding for OSHA. Uh, the president's calling it Rebuild OSHA. So you're going to have uh, maybe doubling the size of the appropriation for that agency. Lots more enforcement, lots more of inspectors, I was on the website the other day looking at this. Got one ads all over the OSHA.gov website <laughs> of people they're looking to hire. Um, and then whistleblower will be the big thing. What they view, I think, is that the whistleblower provisions, and this maybe your audience is not aware of this, but there's 25 separate federal statutes that OSHA is responsible for enforcing the whistleblower or anti-retaliation provisions of. Including SOX, including the Sarbanes-Oxley. Sarbanes uh, the Aviation Act, uh, there's, they're all over. The, there's a, two new ones, a money laundering statute. They just got hit, 
charged with. So um, the critics of OSHA is saying they don't have enough people really to do that work. And the answer is they don't. So you're going to see a lot of emphasis that's already started to bolster the whistleblower directorate, it's called, or department of OSHA, so that they have more people there who can uh, go forward and <clears throat> investigate and then issue complaints. Unfortunately for employers, the standard is just reasonable cause. So it, all that the inspector has to do is find reasonable cause that perhaps that employee was demoted or fired or transferred because of uh, an alleged safety complaint and uh, you're headed to a hearing before an administrative law judge. So that's a serious concern for employers who have not dealt with whistleblower protection yet, administered by OSHA. It's gonna be a big, big part of our practice going forward, Mike, in the next two to three years, because the uh, emphasis is like, like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, what the proponents really wanna do, and it's still out there, is a statute called Protecting American Workers Act, which has gotten stuck in uh, Congress, but <clears throat> that creates a private right of action for employees um, instead of having to go through the agency or uh, because their complaint is that the agency is not aggressive enough in protecting people from both whistleblowing provisions and safety provisions. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that gets any uh, legs as uh, Congress continues to uh, investigate and pass laws in this area. But we're going to have more inspections, more inspectors, more whistleblower cases. Um, and I think from, a, from our perspective as lawyers in that area, it's going to be busy time. That's a perfect segue uh, before I let you leave. Um, as, as sad as we were to uh, see you go from Cozen to the Review Commission, we're just as happy to, to have you back now. Um, you are back here uh, co-leading our OSHA practice group with our partner, John Ho. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit quickly about uh, the focus of the practice group and uh, how you're assisting companies in this area? Well, it's a wide range of things. Uh, for example, the uh, whistleblower uh, protection program is having hearings on May 19th. Uh, we're reaching out now to clients, associations in various industries to see if they want us to present testimony on their behalf at those hearings uh, <clears throat> on May 19th. So that's one area of it. The second area is, is that there's a lot of uh, our employer groups, uh, especially represented by our uh, Washington DC office that are very interested in having more input uh, going forward as they see the impact, this regulatory impact on them. Uh, it's a whole new world under this administration. So we're doing a lot there. And then of course, there's the, uh, the, the cases that come forward. Clients are cited. Um, and as I said, <clears throat> now they're cited and they're concerned about other potential liability that would arise if they simply just settle an OSHA complaint or citation. In the past, because the proposed fines and penalties were so low vis-a-vis -vis the attorney's fees associated with defending them, many of the, our clients and employers in the country would settle. And now they're recognizing that there's some potential other third-party liability that may arise <clears throat> if in fact they just settle. And especially since they're being cited for um, this uh, nasty disease that we've all been dealing with for the last year and a half.
No, that that it certainly is. Well, Jim Sullivan, we are uh, thrilled to have you back at Cozen, and certainly uh, for this podcast, really look forward to uh, further tapping into your expertise uh, as well as the insight that you gathered uh, working for the uh, OSHA Review Commission. And uh, thank you so much for jumping on today. Thank you, Mike, and thank you for having me when I was on the Review Commission. Absolutely. That is all the time we have, and really isn't that enough time. You can now get back to your regular daily routine. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for giving me such great feedback in emails and through other communications. I really appreciate you listening, appreciate you subscribing, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.